just re- thinking of a passage in the book of Titus. It says that the grace of God appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this world, looking for the what? The blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, we are to occupy, Jesus says, till I come. Again, I saw somebody sneak in here. You look, you look a little bit familiar. <laughs> one of our former church members who moved up to Washington. How are you? Good. Good to have you with us this morning. All right. Amen. All right. Let's uh, pray. Lord God, we thank you again for your word and the Lord Jesus Christ who is the word made flesh and dwelt dwelt among us who came to free us from our sins free us from the penalty of the law which we all have broken for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God thankful Lord that we have been freely justified by grace Lord we we pray now for an understanding of your word We realize, Father, that there is much false teaching in the world. And Lord, you have told us to study so that we could rightly divide your truth. And that, Lord, by your help, we could apply it to our life. We are in great need for understanding of your word. And we are in great need for the power of the Holy Spirit to live it out. So I pray today that, Lord, you will just give us a understanding of your word. And I pray, God, that, Lord, we would, we would love your word more and more as the deer pants after the water brook. Lord, so may our, may our souls thirst for you and thirst for your word. We realize, Father, that there, there truly is a famine in the land for the word of God. It's, it's under attack constantly. The values and the morals that you present to us in your word, the commandments, the statutes, Lord, they, they have been forsaken. And Lord, we see things happening at a rapid pace. Truth has fallen in the streets. And Lord, we know your word is truth, so sanctify us through your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been studying the book of Romans, and we really are in Romans chapter 13, but we're not going to be there, or chapter 12, we're not going to be there this morning. Chapter 12 is the beginning of the practical section of the the book of Romans, and it begins with the topic of spiritual gifts in the church. But rather than uh, look at that this morning, I wanted to do a little bit of an introduction to spiritual gifts, Christ's gifts to the church. God is a great giver, right? Amen. He so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, and whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, the passage of Scripture that you read, or Greg read to us, and we followed along, was Ephesians chapter 4. But look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. <clears throat> Which says, but unto every one of us, nobody excluded, is given grace, and there's your word charis, according to the measure of the gift, there's a different Greek word here, doria, of Christ, wherefore he says that when he ascended up on high, this is a very interesting phrase which I wish I had time to get into, maybe some other time, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive. And he gave gifts, and this is the Greek word doma, unto men. Well, we know that the first word grace, charis there, charisma, comes from the verb charizomai, and it means simply to show favor, to bestow favor upon someone. It's derived from the noun charis, which does mean grace. Doria simply means a gift. God has given a gift to every one of us and to the church. Doma also means gifts, and it comes from a Greek verb, didomai, meaning to give or to supply. 
So God has given and supplied everything that his people need, everything that his church needs. We lack nothing. So James Stitzinger defined a gift, and we're talking about a spiritual gift this way. A gift is any ability and accompanying spiritual ministry and effect that God through Christ enables a believer to use or motivates him to use for his glory in the body of Christ through the energizing work of the Holy Spirit. Back in Romans chapter 1, verse 11, Paul wrote to the Roman church, I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift. The Greek word there is pneumatikos. Pneuma means spirit. So this is a spiritually a spiritual gift given by the Lord to the end, Paul said, that you may be established, well-grounded, right? So that you, 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 nothing will be able to shake you. Nothing will be able to move you away from the foundation of uh, the, the rock Christ Jesus and the truth of God's word. But there in Romans 1, he says, I, I, I long to see you so that I can impart to you some spiritual gift. It simply means something a gift that would would spiritually benefit another party. And in this instance, the party was the local church, the body of Christ. The the gift that Paul has in mind here is not really specified. At Faith Community Bible Church, we take the position that some of the gifts listed in Romans chapter 12, prophecy for instance, Ephesians chapter 4, which we just are going to get into, and 1 Corinthians 12, which gives us the most detailed information on spiritual gifts in Scripture, some of those gifts were temporary, intended only for a time in the life of the church. Now, every single Christian receives a spiritual gift. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 makes this clear. But to each one, each one, that's every one of us, is given the manifestation of the Spirit. That's a spiritual gift that the Spirit imparts for the common good. So not not for the the good of the individual, but for the good of the whole body. So Ephesians chapter 4 again, verse 8. Wherefore he saith, and this is from Psalm 68, 8, that Paul's quoting. When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended... What was it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? This is a statement that has engendered much in the way of debate. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens. We know that Christ is far above all heavens, seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of God, that he might fill all things. I think this has to do with the idea that he might, that he might, uh, well, has to do with his rulership, but also his supply, that he might fill all things. And then it goes into the verse that I want to get into this, this morning. And he gave some, this is Christ's gifts to the church, he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now, depending on how you take the grammar there. Christ gave four or five spiritual gifts to the church in the form of gifted men. The first three, apostles, prophets, and evangelists, they they went everywhere preaching the word of God. The word apostles, very, very familiar in the New Testament, if you read your Bible, occurs 79 times in the New Testament. It simply means sent ones, sent, S-E-N-T ones, or delegates. We are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. So in a lesser sense, we're all apostles because we're ambassadors of Christ. And Jesus told his disciples, go ye into all the world, right? He gave them a commission. He sent them on a mission. So they were sent on an authorized mission with authority from the one who sent them. Hebrews 3.1 says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle. So it's using this in reference to Jesus Christ. The apostle, sent one, and the high priest of our 
profession, Christ Jesus. So Jesus, according to Hebrews 3.1, was God the Father's heavenly sent messenger of truth who came to die for our sins, the sins of all of mankind. He was sent on a mission. God gave his only begotten son so that we can live through him. And in John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying there, saying to the Father, as you have sent me into the world, verse 18, even so have I also sent them into the world. So every Christian, again, is an apostle in a limited sense. Our commission and our authority is limited to proclaiming the gospel and declaring God's truth that's found in his word. Now, there is a movement that has been going on for quite some time now, and it's called the New Apostolic Reformation. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It goes by the abbreviation NAR, N-A-R, New Apostolic Reformation. And this is a movement that asserts that God is restoring, or has restored, the lost offices of church governance, governance, namely the offices of prophet and apostle. And the reason that he's done this is because the church is going to begin to manifest itself in a supernatural way and exert dominion upon the whole earth. And this is all preparatory to Christ's coming and his kingdom will be established on the earth. And it says, in this time, God has given authority and power for people that he has delegated to take authority in earthly and spiritual realms. And they put a great deal of emphasis on what they call the manifestation of the Spirit in miraculous signs and wonders. Well, NAR, New Apostolic Reformation. There is nothing new about it. There is nothing apostolic about it. And there is nothing reforming about it in a positive way. It is dangerous, false teaching. People calling themselves apostles. It's interesting, Revelation 2, 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that beholds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know your works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and has found them liars. There are many people today, men and women, claiming to be apostles, and they're not telling the truth. I don't know if you ever heard, anybody ever heard of uh, Paula White? Paula White. A couple of people have heard of Paula White. Uh, she's a woman who heads up a big church pastor in, in uh, Florida. She is a, uh, an advocate of NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. What you may not know about her is that she is Donald Trump's spiritual advisor. She is one of many, but Governor Huckabee, former governor of Arkansas, basically said she's the chief spiritual advisor to Donald Trump. When the election was over, November 3rd, 2020, and after, you know, that, that all that turmoil going on there and county votes and all of these things and claims of fraud, in November 5th, Donald Trump's spiritual advisor, Paula White, on a Wednesday night prayer meeting, started speaking in tongues. And she started giving a, what she called a revelation of angels. She says, I see angels coming from Africa. Angels coming from South America. Victory, victory, victory. And, and she believed that this revelation she got from God was these angels coming to right the wrongs of the election and to give Donald Trump the victory. And there are many, many people just like that who give these types of false revelations. Well... God does send people out, right? And they do have authority given to him. I was thinking of that verse from Isaiah 6, 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Right? And who will go for me? Then what? Said I, 
Here am I, what? Send me. You know what that is? Availability, right? We're, we're, we're no prophets of God. We're not Elijah's. We're, we're not uh, John the Baptist. We're not Peter. We're not Paul. But if we are available, God will use us, right? And God will send us and put us in the right places to minister to people who need the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the primary apostolic office required requirement for, for an, a true apostle was that they had to see the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And you can find that in the, in the book of Acts chapter 1, verse 22, which means this. After the death of the last living apostle, John, who had seen the Lord, the office and the ministry of an apostle ceased to exist. Nobody could meet that requirement anymore. They had to sing the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul saw the Lord where? On the, on the road to Damascus. Ephesians 2, verse 19 says, Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the the chief cornerstone. So in that scripture in Ephesians 2.19, the apostles and the prophets, they were part of the substructure of the building. The church is the building, the body of Christ. And it was built upon this superstructure of the, of the, the, the foundation with Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. So that, that's the foundational truth. The church is built upon that, what we would call the superstructure. The substructure, I'm sorry, was, was Jesus and, and the, the, the apostles and prophets with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Well, the chief cornerstone is significant because the cornerstone in ancient times was a choice stone. It was selected right in the quarry and then it was cut to fit into place in the building, and it was the stone from which all the, the other stones that would be laid in the building of that building, uh, they would take their course based upon that cornerstone. And that's what Jesus is, right? He is the chief cornerstone. And the apostles and the prophets, they proclaimed the truth about Jesus, and the church was built upon those truths. The only head of the church is who? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible makes that very clear. But it says in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, we are God's fellow workers. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? That we, I mean, why, why, you know, why you, why me? We're God's fellow workers. And Paul says, you are God's field. You are God's building. So he uses those different metaphors. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder. Now listen to what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 3.9. I laid the foundation. How did he lay the foundation there? Through the preaching of of the gospel. I laid the foundation and others build upon it. But let each one take heed how he builds upon it. I mean, are we doing that? Are we building up this structure, the body of Christ. It's speaking about you know, numerical growth and the church expanding its influence throughout the world. And we're all part of that. But he says, no other foundation can anyone lay which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. That is why he is central to everything. And that is why the scripture says that Jesus and Jesus alone must have the preeminence. No man, no ministry, no church. It's Christ and Christ alone. So I say all of that to say this. Do not be fooled by any talk of a living apostle or prophet who gives revelation. They are false apostles. They are false prophets. The authority of the apostles we also know by Paul's own testimony in 1 Corinthians 12.12 was authenticated by signs now people are having trouble with the apostle paul 
The Galatians were having trouble with his ministry. He says, have I become your enemy because I've told you the truth? The Corinthians were doubting his apostleship. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Well, they did some pretty amazing things. They healed people completely instantaneously. They cast out demons. They raised the dead. Some people say, you know, you see a lot of faith raisers today, but you know, how many people are raising the dead, right? They gave revelation that came from God. They gave revelation. Apostolic authority, the authority that they had was granted to them by God. And this is clear in, in many, many scriptures. 1 Corinthians 5, 8, Galatians chapter 1, Paul begins saying that he was not an apostle of men, but he was commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that Jesus Christ picked how many apostles? Twelve. Twelve apostles. All men, by the way, to lead his church. And then after Judas had fallen, Matthias was selected by divine direction to be the successor of Judas. So there were the twelve then, and then you had the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul, as he said in Romans chapter 1, he says, it begins this way, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Well, who called him? The Lord Jesus Christ. He says, separated unto the gospel of God. That was his ministry. In 1 Corinthians 5.8, he says this, you know, as he speaks about the appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection appearances, he says, and last of all, last of all, he appeared to one untimely born. That was him. He appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles, and I am not fit to be called an apostle, because I, what? I persecuted the church of God. Paul was not only the least of the apostles, in his opinion of himself, He was the last of the apostles appointed by Jesus. There is no biblical evidence anywhere that the office of an apostle was to continue on throughout the church age. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has a doctrine that they call the doctrine of apostolic succession. And they believe that Peter was the first, what? Pope, being an apostle, and that subsequently there's been an unbroken line of successors to that office to head up the church. And that's also a false claim. Well, what did, what did the apostles have? They, number one, they had, a, they had authority over local churches. You can remember the story in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with the brother who was sinning and, and Paul rendered his verdict already and he was basically telling the church, okay, now you just, you just follow my lead. And, you know, turn such a one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, Right? And so he, he was exerting his apostolic authority, authority there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1 through 5. We also saw it with the judgment on Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. So they had authority over local churches. Prophets. Prophets, they had a supernatural gift whereby they were able to communicate by divine revelation truth from God. And just like the office of an apostle, the prophets were temporary in the life of the church. And by the way, the apostles also served as prophets. And the word, you know, prophetes, speaking of a prophet, there is also a word caruso, to proclaim God's truth. So the apostles proclaimed God's truth. They were heralds of God's truth. And and they set the truth of God forth. But they didn't always you know, predict the future. Some did. But but Second Peter one nineteen says this we have a more what? Sure word of prophecy. Then then even what was given before, even even the supernatural manifestation that, that Peter, James and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, it was a glorious thing. But we have a more sure word of prophecy. What is it? What is this? It's the word of God that you have that you have. And you're able, to, you're able to read it every day. 
We have a more sure word of prophecy. He says, whereby you do well that you take heed as a light that shines in a dark place. And we certainly are living in a dark place. And we need the light of God's word to shine. And we need the day star to arise in our hearts. That love for Jesus Christ. And then he says this in 2 Peter 1 verse 20. Knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. It did not originate with men. It originated with God. He says, for the prophecy came not in old time. This is going all the way back to the Old Testament prophets. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of men. So none of these men just suddenly felt, you know, inspired in a sense that, you know, a light sense of the meaning of the word inspiration that, oh, man, I, you know, I, th- I think God's saying something to me, you know. And then they just go forth and, and speak out. It didn't arise of their own by the will of men. But it says this, holy men of God. What does that mean? Elijah, Jeremiah the prophets that we know in the Old Testament, it means they were separated unto God. God separated them from other men. It doesn't mean they were perfect in terms of moral holiness or righteousness because they weren't. No one was. But the, the holy men of God, men God separated, and the holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It's a, it's a nautical term that was used of, of, of the wind catching the sails of a ship and moving it along. And really what it, what it means was, was God the Holy Spirit sees these men. He, speaks, he sees control of their faculties and he used their personalities and they spoke. And what they spoke was the word. God had given to them. Absolute truth. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Rennie Showers, he used to uh, work with Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. Uh, He spoke here at this church. He's now with the Lord. He's got perfect understanding of all things. Rennie Showers uh, says this, a significant principle concerning spiritual gifts is this, and that principle is as follows. The duration of a spiritual gift is determined by its purpose or function. How long a spiritual gift will last was determined by the purpose or the function for that gift that God had in mind. A spiritual gift will continue to exist, he says, until it fulfills its God-given intended purpose or function. By the way, that's true of you and, and, and me, right? We're going to live until we fulfill the function that God has for us to fulfill. My my old friend Mike, who's now with the Lord, he used to say, "I'm I'm immortal until God's dead done with me," and that's true. Once it fulfills that purpose or function, it is no longer necessary. Rennie Shower says, and God does away with the gift. The gift ceases in and of itself, which. We'll get into that when we get more into the spiritual gifts in, in Romans 12 and talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So I will say this. With the completion of the canon of Scripture, what does they mean? C-A-N-O-N? It means the rule. It means the Word of God. This is the canon of, of Scripture. All the books of the Bible that we have. With the completion of the canon of Scripture, after the last book was penned, which was the book of Revelation, there was no longer any need for partial revelation through prophets. And I believe the prophetic office ceased. Ephesians 3, 4 says this, whereby when you read, Paul says, want you to understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And the mystery that Paul was speaking about was the mystery of the Jew and the Gentile in one body that we called the church. The Old Testament prophets didn't receive that mystery. Paul received that mystery. So Jesus 
the woman at Samaria. John 4.19, the woman said to him, after he pointed out her sinful lifestyle, she said, Sir, I perceive that you are what? A prophet. And even she understood that there are certain things that only God can know. 1 Corinthians 2.9, 2, I have not seen nor ear heard Neither has entered into the heart of men the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And you know, we often use this verse and we say, well, wow, I mean, heaven is going to be grand. Heaven's going to be grand. Heaven's going to be glorious. We, we don't know. We, I mean, that's true, right? That is true. I hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither hath entered into the heart of the man the things that God hath prepared for those who love them. And sometimes we stop there. Like, well, we have no idea about what heaven is like. But look what Paul says, verse 10. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. So there is much that we do know. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. There are things, Deuteronomy, what is it, 29, 29, that only God knows. They're hidden. Only God knows. But, but in the apostolic error with the apostles and the prophets and the establishment of the church, God was revealing specific truths to his people through them, even the deep things of God. Prophets had the gift of prophecy, twofold. Foretelling, they would go forward and tell the word of God, and, and, or foretelling, and they would foretell the future. They had the gift of prophecy for the purpose of edification, that's to build up the church, to comfort people in trying times, to encourage the church prior to the completion of the New Testament canon. We also know that they had the gift of predicting the future. Agabus was a prophet of God in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, and he predicted a coming famine. And you know what's interesting is a lot of times when you hear people claiming to give prophecies and so forth, some of them are very general. They they lack the specifics that you see in the scripture when the Old Testament prophets gave prophets. And it's because they don't know. They simply don't know. Well, what about Acts 2.28 that says this? It will come to pass afterward that it will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Well, is that true for everybody today? When, when Pentecost, on Pentecost Sunday, when that prophecy from Joel was fulfilled, some remarkable things happened. But it was just for a time. The ultimate fulfillment of this will be in the future. Remember this, and we've taught this many times. The church age, the church age which we are living in, I believe it began at Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the group of the early disciples who were Jewish believers. And like I said, you know, some miraculous things happened at that time, including the ability to speak in languages that they did not know, which, which is tongues. But the church age began at Pentecost, and it ends when? It ends with the rapture of the church. New revelation will come to the earth in fulfillment of that prophecy during the early foundational stages of, the, or we should say the final wrapping up of things and the consummation of things and then the, 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 the millennial kingdom on earth. So you have apostles and you have prophets who gave those kinds of revelations. And then he says the third was evangelists evangelists mark preached in sunday school or taught in sunday school you know on uh the good news the gospel is the good news the evangelion and and the evangelists are those who bring the good news we are all to do the work of an evangelist in telling others about jesus amen nobody's excluded because we're all received the the, the commandment to be the ambassador of Jesus Christ. But the early church evangelists, we might call them missionaries, church planners, they had a unique ability to do this. They, they were itinerant preachers. They were men who traveled from place to place, preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and then establishing churches, and then Paul would often go back and visit the churches that he established. Philip was one. In Acts 8, 5, it says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Remember what Jesus said, go ye into what? All the world and preach the gospel to every creature, beginning in Jerusalem, and then where? Judea, and then where? Samaria, and then where? To the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, it says Philip did that. He went to the city of Samaria, and he, what did he do? He was an evangelist. Philip the evangelist. And what did he do? He preached Christ unto them. So every time you preach Christ to somebody, you are fulfilling an evangelistic calling. God told you to be an evangelist. Not in the same sense as the originals. Acts 21.8 says this, And the next day we that were of Paul's company departed, we went to Caesarea, and we went into the house, and look how he describes this, the house of Philip the evangelist. He calls him that specifically, which was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. So Philip was an evangelist, and you might say deacon as well, is not, that Philip the evangelist was not Philip the apostle. The boss of the Bible actually doesn't tell us much about some of these individuals. But Paul, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy verse four, chapter 4, verse 5, But you... Be sober in all things. That, what does that mean? To be on guard, to be alert, to be watchful, to be watchful in all things. Endure hardship, right? We can expect hardships in this world. Paul told the Philippians, all who live godly in Christ will what? Will suffer persecution, some type of persecution. And sometimes God sends people because he's the one who sends them out he will send them into places where they're going to experience a lot of persecution. We do not know what that is like here in America. We have not experienced persecution. Endure hardship. And then he tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fulfill your ministry. Now the question that I have is, are we as individuals fulfilling our ministry to be representatives of Christ, ambassadors of Christ, doing the work of an evangelist? You say, well, I, I, I really have a difficult time with that. Well, then get with somebody who doesn't have a difficult time with it. Learn from them. Model them. It's called mentoring. If you have a hard time sharing the gospel with Jesus Christ, begin with praying. Praying. Say, Lord, help me. Help me to understand things well enough so that I can communicate it to people. Give me holy boldness to speak your word. Don't just say, oh, that's not for me. I'm, I'm not good at that. Then the, the next gift here is pastor-teacher. The two words are linked by a single definite article. But, you know, I have to say this. It does not necessarily point to a single gift. It does not necessarily do that. Bill Mounts, he's written a great uh, grammar of the Greek New Testament. He says the use of a single article with multiple plural nouns indicates a single unit, but it does not necessarily mean the two nouns are identical. The same construction occurs earlier in chapter 2 in verse 20 of... Uh, Ephesians, and it joins apostles and prophets, but they're not identical offices. So the, some people say it means pastor-teacher. So I just want to think about that for a moment. The, the, the word pastor, I mean, you call me your pastor. And by the way, I've said this many times, you know, to everything there is a time and a season, right? Under the sun. So there there's a time when I came and there's a time that I'll go. To everything, there's a time and a season under the sun. And you, this church will be choosing another pastor. And that is the single biggest decision that this church, you people, will ever make. Ever make. You can get a preacher in here. It's no problem. You can get, you can get someone who is more gifted as a preacher than me, as a teacher. But what you need is a shepherd. 
What this church needs is a pastor, a shepherd. And that's the word poimenos, pastors. And then the word teachers is didaskalos, from the idea of didache, which means teaching. Uh, they're separated there by a conjunction. By the way, and this is incidental anyway, they happen to be both in the same case, accusative, which means that the noun then functions as an adjective, got that? And can be translated simply by saying teaching. Teaching. So what, what he's referring to here is teaching pastors. Some scholars suggest there are two different gifts with overlapping functions. And according to that view, all pastors, and I consent, I agree with this, all pastors must be teachers. They must have the ability to teach the word of God. Paul, or Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep, right? Pastor, pastor my flock. And you do that by teaching the word of God. One of the ways you do that. So, according to all pastors must be teachers, but not all teachers in the church are shepherds. They're not all pastors. We have some people here teaching Sunday school class. They're, they're not shepherds. They're not pastors. And we know that teaching can function. The gift of teaching, the spiritual gift of teaching, can function in many different ways in a local church or a ministry outside the local church. What we would call parachurch ministries, like Answers in Genesis. And that simply means ministries that come alongside, para, come alongside the church to support the church, not to undermine the church or to replace the church, because the local church is irreplaceable. It's irreplaceable. No ministry out there can function like a local church and do the things that a local church does and the pastor of a local church and the elders of the local church do to build up the body of Christ and also to care for the body of Christ, to shepherd them. God has given the spiritual gift of a pastor-teacher to men only. And I think this is important. Paul told Timothy, this is a true saying, if anyone desires the, the office of a bishop, that means an overseer, he desires a good work, a good thing. Episcopal is the word there. We get the word episcopal from that. Oversight. A bishop, he says, then an overseer, an elder, a pastor, must be blameless, the husband of one wife, or one wife kind of a man, vigilant, sober, which means he's always looking out for the welfare of the flock. That's what it means. Of good behavior, given to hospitality, you know, friendly, right? Just shows himself to be that way. And then he adds this qualification in 1 Timothy 3, 2. Able to teach. Able to teach. That's what discipleship is all about. Teaching people. Now you can have an individual ministry of discipleship, and I suggest you do. You say, well, I don't know too much. Well, I guarantee you there's somebody who knows less than you do. So find them and start building them up. And that's, that's how the body of Christ is, is to multiply. Each one reach one, build one up. That's what discipleship means. But a pastor disciples the flock. His ministry is unique. He, he teaches the whole flock, brings them together in one setting often and does that. He must be able to teach. In Acts 20, 28, Paul said, Take heed therefore, speaking to the elders in the church of Ephesus, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to what? What's their emphasis? What's their concern? The flock. And as a pastor, as a shepherd, would care for the sheep and see threats come against the sheep and respond to it, that's what I do. I mean, that, that's how you will get the biggest reaction out of me. 
because I, I care for the flock. And Jesus cares for the flock. It says he purchased the church, the flock, with his own blood. That's how important it is to him. So he says, elders in Ephesus, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers. That's really important. The Holy Spirit selects people to rule and, and provide oversight and to teach the church. Some people think, well, we're going to take a big vote. Well, you know, democracy is nice, right? But in reality, it's the Holy Spirit of God working through people who, who are in prayerfully in union with Him and taking heed to the things of the Word of God in selecting the people that are to rule the church. Over which the Holy Spirit had made you overseers. And then it says, to feed. And that simply means pastor like a shepherd. Pastor like a shepherd. The church of God that he has purchased with his own blood. There's the verse that I referred to. That's why it's so important. Titus 1.7 says this. For the overseer must be beyond reproach as God's steward. And it doesn't mean perfect. But, but it means he's... he's not to have something about him which would disqualify him in the eyes of people. He must be beyond, beyond reproach as God's steward. And that, that really means God's household manager. That's what a steward is. God's household manager. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not overindulging in wine, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, self-controlled, righteous, holy, disciplined, holding, holding firmly the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that's the revelation that has been given, so that he will be able, and here's another real important function of a pastor teacher that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it and I think that's been a big part of my ministry teaching sound doctrine exhorting you to to believe it and to practice it exhorting in sound doctrine and refuting, pointing out those who are contradicting it. And boy, do we need that, right? It's called discernment. It's called being a Berean. Searching the scripture to know which things are true. And then holding firmly to those things. 1 Timothy 2.11 says that the women learn in silence. That's in the church. With all subjection. For I do not suffer, which means allow a woman to teach. There's, there's, there's to be no women pastors in the church. By God's design. I do not allow a woman to teach or to usurp authority over a man, but to be in silence. That's a church function. God is saying that the office of a shepherd, pastor, teacher, elder is restricted to men. In the church. Hebrews 13.7 says this. Remember those. Who have the rule over you. It really means authority over you. Remember them. Who have spoken unto you the word of God. Whose faith follow. Follow. Considering the end of their manner of life. In other words if they're living the kind of a Christian life. That God would have everyone to live. Follow them. And, and submit to them, is what he says. Verse 17 of Hebrews 13 says, Obey them who have the rule over you. So when you put those passages together, obey, submit, follow, they're, they're very strong. And, and the, the function of a pastor and teacher and elders can be abused. And they're not worthy of following. But if they're teaching you the word of God and if they're living by the example, 
then God says, follow them. Submit to them. Now, why, why did God establish pastors and teachers, apostles and prophets? Well, particularly pastors and teachers. Teachers, It says he gave the gifts to the church for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So what that boils down to here is the elders and pastor are to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, which results in the body of Christ being edified. The perfecting of the saints. That means maturing. God doesn't want us, God doesn't want any of his children to be babes, just able to digest milk. He wants them to be able to consume the meat of his word, which is strong doctrine, the tough things that you have to work through. So as the church, as individuals in the church matures, then they're able to do the work of the ministry. The pastor and the elders can't do it all. So the people get matured, strengthened, they do the work of the ministry, and then collectively the whole church is built up. And strengthen, and as a good gospel witness, Second Timothy three sixteen says this: All Scripture is what breathed out by God. That's it. That's one verse we should all know. All Scripture is given by inspiration, God breathed, and is profitable. Notice what it says: profitable for teaching, for doctrine, for reproof. That's when people are going astray. You're calling them back to the right way for correction. You know what it does? I'm telling you, there's no book in the world that will correct your thinking like this one. None. You won't find it anywhere for, for correction. For instruction in righteousness. So it's not only to keep you from you know, falling off the, off the track and going the wrong way, but to guide you in the right way. Instruction in righteousness. And then it says this, concerning why God gave us this word, that the man of God and the woman of God, right, may be perfect. Now, nobody's perfect, right? Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And that latter phrase explains the meaning of the word perfect. It means thoroughly equipped to do what God would have you to do, to fulfill your part in the body of Christ, thoroughly equipped. Remember somebody giving an illustration one time? They wanted to, they wanted to get into sort of competitive bicycling, racing. So they went down to, to Walmart and, and they bought their bike. No. You don't go to Walmart and get thoroughly equipped to be a competitive bike racer, right? You go to what? A store that sells some really very expensive bikes and the equipment that you would need to do that. And so that's what this word of God does. That's why God gave it to us. So that we could be thoroughly equipped to run the race that has been set before us to do the work of the ministry. So the pastor-teacher has a teaching ministry to build up the church. Pastor is to teach people sound doctrine, sound living, and how a local church must get along and strive together to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because if the church goes down due to false doctrine, if the church goes down due to discord, its ministry of the gospel, its support of the ministries who the church has sent out as ministers or supporting as ministers of the gospel, all of that goes down with it. You ever stop to think if this church fails, how many people are going to be, lose the support? And, and people who are counting on it, some get a good, good amount of support. And if this church were to fail... Well, where's that go? They've got to make that up somewhere else. And then the witness of the church in the community itself is lost.
Just think about it this way. Our behavior in a local church can have a global impact. We don't often think about that, but it's true. Romans 12, as we get into Romans 12, it mentions teaching as a spiritual gift within the church which is not confined to elders or pastors. So you may very well have the gift of teaching. Use it. You know, you just exercise it. You strengthen muscles by what? By working out, by using them. Robert Gramacki says this, and I'm almost finished, equipping involves repairing and preparing Christians for ministry. It refers to restoring something to its original condition or being made fit or complete. The word was used of fishermen who mended their nets in Matthew 4.21. It was used of doctors in secular Greek who set a bone. And this is what we're to do, equip you for the word, to restore, to bring back to a state of wholeness, to build up. So spiritual Christians have a responsibility to restore other Christians who have fallen into sin. If you see anyone overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, what? Restore them. Restore them. Galatians 6.1. Equipping involves repairing, repairing spiritually broken Christians. Now listen, that's a tough ministry. God has called some people to that and they have a a spiritual gift to be able to exhort and to build up and to restore Christians who have fallen. 1 Thessalonians 3.10 says that Paul prayed exceedingly that he might see their face and perfect what is lacking in their faith. So equipping involves a personal ministry of teaching the word of God to God's people and helping them to know what they believe. And I always add this, and this is the really important thing. You must know what you believe. Amen? And you must know why you believe it. It's just not enough to articulate truths. Why do you believe those things? Because if you you know, get into an apologetics type of ministry or witnessing to somebody, that's very important. Know what you believe and why you believe it. And then how to behave. So we equip so that you can know what you believe, why you believe it, and how to behave as Christians in this world. I often said this, ortho means straight. Orthodoxy means straight doctrine. Orthodoxy, straight doctrine. It should result in orthopraxy, straight practice. Right doctrine should lead to right living. Ephesians 4, 13, till we all come to the unity of faith. This is where the church is headed. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, mature, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We are headed for glory, brothers and sisters. We are headed for perfection. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 1.28, Paul says, speaking whom we preach, he says, this is, this is what I do in preaching. Warning every man, that's the reproof, that's the correction, and teaching every man, that's sound doctrine, in all wisdom that I might present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. That's an amazing thing. He says, I labor among you to teach God's word so that you won't be a babe anymore, so that you'll grow up spiritually. You'll be able to stand on your own two spiritual feet. You'll know truth from error You'll be able to communicate that truth to other people and you'll be able to apply it in your own life. You'll be a mature Christian man or woman. I mean, think about parenting. What, do you, you don't want your children to stay like they are, you know, 6, 5, 4, 7, 10, 11 years old, right? They're growing. You want them to keep growing, reach a point where they can make decisions for themselves. They can function in life. They can have a job. They can you know, have a family. You want to bring them up 
in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And that's really what pulpit ministry is about, bringing people up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. It's just a different family. Colossians 2.6, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. All right? We all agree on that, right? You're born again. Walk as a born-again believer. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. What, what will it take to move you away from this book, away from Jesus Christ? What will it take to move you? Paul says, I want you to be rooted in the truth so that nothing can move you away from Jesus Christ. I, 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 I worked two years as a, as a transit operator on a, on a survey team, survey crew, and we used to go out there, I'm telling you, to put stakes in the ground back in Pennsylvania in January, frozen, way down. But I'm telling you, if you were able to get, get a stake in there, and that thing would never move because everything would freeze around it. It was rooted. I could remember an older pastor said to me one time, stand for Jesus, drive your stake deep in the ground and don't let anybody move you. I was, you know who it was? It was Bob Jones III who said that to me. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you have been taught. And you know what? He says, abounding therein with complaining. No, thanksgiving. Look, I know the world wants you to think you're somebody special. You're not. I'm nobody special. Everything that we have is owing to the grace of God. And and we just ought to be thankful for that. If I can teach, I'm thankful for that. If you can do some other function in the body, be thankful for that. 